Morning, guys. Good to see you all. See some of you, at least. See some familiar faces. You're all very tiny, uh, which makes me feel big. Um, <clears throat> if you don't know me, my name is Andrew. I'm one of the pastors here at Village. Um, and if you have a Bible in front of you, I hope you do. Uh, open it at Hebrews chapter 7. That's where we're going to be this morning. Um, we're continuing this series called Jesus is Better, um, looking at this idea that Jesus is actually better, better than anything we can conceive or imagine, and better than everything that, that came before him in the Old Testament that was pointing to him. Um, and in this case, right now, we're looking at this idea that Jesus is our better priest, um, we're, we're in the second of three weeks in Hebrews chapter 7. On the surface, it's kind of a complicated chapter of the Bible, isn't it? We're to- talking about this guy called Melchizedek, um, who was a priest in the Old Testament, and we're looking at how he points forward to Jesus. But really what this, uh, I guess what uh, the question that I'm, I'm, I'm trying to use this passage to answer, and I think this, this, this chapter does answer, is this question, how do we draw near to God? Um, last week we saw that this is the most fundamental question that human beings can ask. This week I read a, an article on the New Scientist website, and it was talking about the big questions. You know, we, people always talk about the big questions. What are the big questions? Um, and there was four questions that they had were like the, the big questions. Uh, one was, "What is the origin of the universe?" Seems like a pretty big question. Uh, another one, "What is reality?" <laughs> Uh, which is a crazy question. Another one was, what is the purpose of life? And then finally, what happens after we die? So these are kind of like the scene as the four big questions. Uh, and, and I think they're important questions, don't get me wrong. I think that if we ask these questions in the right way, um, they will lead us to God. Um, but the most fundamental question, the most important question is this one that Hebrews chapter 7 answers, which is, how can I draw near to God? How can I become close to God? Um, and, and the reason why this is the most fundamental question is because we're all born in separation from God. That's, that's the truth, right? Uh, Romans 3, 23, uh, for all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. Um, Isaiah 59, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you. That we, we by, by our very human nature, we're, we're, we're born in separation from God. The one who, who created life, who holds life, who, who gives life, and we're cut off from him, and that's a problem. We're, we're destined to inherit death, and not just death, physical death, but, but also eternal death. And Hebrews chapter 7 is addressing this problem and answering this question, how do we draw near to God? How do we get close again to the one who gives life and brings life and is the source of life? And we saw last week, and I'm going to point to it again right now at the start, uh, near the end of this, this passage, near the end of this chapter, verse 25, it says that Jesus is able to save to the uttermost. That means save completely. There's, there's not one part of salvation that's incomplete. Those who draw near to God through Him, those who draw near to God through Jesus, since He, that is Jesus, since Jesus always lives to make intercession for them. That means that, that Jesus always lives. He lives eternally to pray for us, to be on our side and, and be for us. And it's because of that that He's able to save us completely. And, and for the Hebrews, remember that this, this sermon was given to um, a, a, a group of, of Jewish Christians, and, and, and they, they had to resist this temptation to, to trust in other things, to trust the Old Testament law in order to draw near to God. And for us, we have that temptation too, that temptation to try and use other ways to get close to God. 
And what uh, the, the passage we're focusing on today, we're going to see that, that we, we need a paradigm shift. We need a new way of thinking. This is what this passage that we're about to read is about, that we need a new way of thinking in order to draw near to God through the better hope that we have in Jesus. So let's read our passage. We're in Hebrews chapter 7, and this morning I'm going to read, we're going to read together, follow along if you have a Bible, Hebrews chapter 7, verses 11 through to 19. Hebrews chapter 7, 11 to 19. This is God's Word, and, and so uh, even though you're in your own living rooms and whatever this morning, uh, after I finish reading it, I'm going to say, this is the Word of the Lord, and then you go affirm that by saying, uh, thanks be to God, because we thank God that He speaks to us, right? Um, so, so let's hear what God has to say to us from Hebrews chapter 7, verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, that's the Old Testament priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? For where there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar, for it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another, another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. This is the word of the Lord. Yes, some people in the room, so I can hear it. Um, the idea of a paradigm shift is a, is a funny one, and um, there's lots of examples that we could think of, um, but I, I was reading some stuff this week, and I came across th- this one. Uh, you've all heard of Swiss watches, right? I used to work in a jeweler shop, believe it or not. It's actually true. I was between jobs, and I worked in a jeweler shop, and uh, all these exp- I love the watch section, all these expensive watches. But in the early, uh, early 20th century, Swiss uh, Swiss watches like had a monopoly on the market, right? They were they're still renowned for being the best in the world, but but back then they were pretty much the only people making good quality watches. And then at one point, one of the the, the best engineers in Switzerland uh, came up with the digital watch, and so he he took it to uh, the all these executives of all these different companies, and he said, "Look, this is the future. It's the future. Digital watches." And they all kind of said, no, like, this is, we, this is, watches are made, but with, you know, clockwork and all that kind of stuff, this will never catch on, uh, you're, you're silly. And so he took it to Japan, and Japan took over the market and absolutely decimated the Swiss watchmaking industry. Now, this happened because those, the leaders of the, of the Swiss industry, they failed to change their way of thinking. They weren't prepared to have that paradigm shift that they needed. 
One of the paradigm shifts in my life happened when I got married, uh, because when you get married, one of the things that happens uh, is that you very quickly realize how selfish you are. Um, I couldn't just like decide that I wanted to do something, uh, not because my wife is controlling, but just because just because you have to let somebody, you love them and you want them to, you know, you have to make sure that if you're not going to be at home, they know that and all that kind of stuff. I couldn't go where I wanted. I couldn't, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, and then another paradigm shift happens when you have kids. Because suddenly all your values change again, and the things you, you, you think are important change. And this is exactly what a paradigm shift is. It's a way, it's a change in the way you think. It's a change in your values. It's a change in what you think is important. And according to the author of Hebrews, we need a paradigm shift if we are going to draw near to God through the better hope we have in Jesus. We need a new way of thinking. You see, all of us have things that we cling on to to find our hope in, don't we? All of us have things, all of us put things in place in our lives that we think will somehow bring us close to God, that will make God see us in a more favorable light. And maybe even as I've said that, you can start thinking about what those things are for you. So here's a couple of questions to get you thinking as we move forward in this passage. What what do you place your hope in? What do you try to use in order to bring you closer to God? Have a think about those things. This is exactly what the pastor of Hebrews is trying to get this church to think about as he delivers this message. We need a new way of thinking in order to draw near to God through the better hope we have in Jesus. And there's three things from this passage that we're going to see this morning. Out with the old, in with the new, and how the new can make us perfect. So firstly, out with the old. I'm going to read, uh, I'm going to read this passage as we go along because I think that's helpful because if we just read it all at the start and then it's kind of out of our minds. So let, let me read um, verses 11 to 12 again so it's fresh in our minds. It says this, Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, So if somehow we could have been made perfect through um, the Old Testament priesthood, for under it people received the law. I'm going to come back to that, but the law and the priesthood are tied together. Then what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? Now remember, I'm not going to spend much time in Melchizedek this week, but remember Melchizedek was this figure who appears in Genesis chapter 14, and he's a priest. He's He's not part of the Jewish system, but he's a priest of God Almighty, and he blesses Abraham. So what further need, if the old system was perfect, could bring us perfection, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. Now what we need to understand is that that these Christians who were first hearing this message, they were Christians who were Jews by birth. They grew up learning the old, what we would call the Old Testament. Uh, they would have memorized lots of it. They would have memorized the first five books of the Bible uh, by the time they were a very young age. Uh, they'd been, they, they grew up being taught that in order to have any good standing with God at all, you, you, you had to obey all the law and, and do what the priest says. In fact, to be an Israelite in the Old Testament, you couldn't live under the law without the priesthood. The two were inextricably linked. The priesthood and the law are bound together, right? So uh, to, to, to live under the law, 
and to be obedient to it meant that you were dependent on the priesthood, uh, not just to worship God, but actually to be part of the people. It's not like us where I can uh, obey the laws of this land, and, and most of the time I do that. Most of the time, like, I'm not a criminal or something. I mean, like, the odd time I break the speed limit or something like that. But no, I don't. I'm perfect, obviously. Um, but, but we can live under the laws of our land, obey all the laws, and then choose whatever God we want to worship. That's not what it was like for an Israelite. You see, in ancient Israel, if you didn't have your sins cleansed every year by the, the sacrifices that the priests made, and if you didn't obey all the laws uh, concerning uh, ritual purification and keeping yourself clean and all that kind of stuff, then you'd actually be cast out of the people. You couldn't be part of the people without the priest. You see how this works? The law and the priest, uh, priesthood go together. See, to be an Israelite was to live under the law and depend on the priesthood to make atonement for you so that you could remain part of the nation. But here's what the Jews had failed to recognize after Jesus had come. All of this, all the law and the priests and the sacrifices and the being cleansed of your sins to be part of the people, that was all set up as a temporary thing, all pointing towards Jesus. Jesus, who we know would, would be the law, would fulfill the law, would be the priest and the sacrifice for our sins and allow us to be part of the people. And we're going to go into that in, in more detail next week. It's a bit like, and I've used, this, uh, I've used this illustration before, it's a bit like an architect's model, right? So, uh, you know, you, you, the architect's model, they're, they're brilliant, right? They, they show the layout of the building and, and where all the rooms are going to be and, and where the car park's going to be and they have those wee tiny people and the wee tiny trees. But it's completely useless if you actually want to live in that building or make, use that as a hospital, right? It just doesn't work. It's good in what it does, but it's not fit for the complete purpose. This, was the, 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 this is like the Old Testament law and the Old Testament priesthood. You see, the, the priesthood of Aaron and of Levi was never designed to bring us perfection. In other words, it was never designed to, to bring us unpeded access to God. It was never designed to bring us perf perfect and permanent access to God. It has a certain function for a time and place, which is limited. So, so even the best priests under that system, right, even if they were able to keep themselves pure and eat all the right things and, and cleanse themselves in all the right ways and, and, and to do the sacrifices in, per, in the perfect way to the letter of the book, they could never have done for the people what Jesus has done for us as our better and eternal and perfect priest. The law was never meant to bring anyone perfection. It was a temporary system that allowed the Israelites to live in a way that was a light to the nations, right? It, it, was, a way, it was designed to, to, so that they could live in a way that showed people what God is like, right? Um, because laws always reflect the, the values of the lawgiver. Even in our society, we have laws that say, you know, murder is wrong, why? Because our society, in some ways at least, value the sanctity of human life. Or we have laws that say, if you steal something, you're going to go to jail. Why? Because our society values the right to personal property. What's mine is mine, and, and, and you can't take that away from me. Just like the Old Testament uh, law existed, that when the people obeyed that, it showed the perfection and holiness of God. The law was there to point to the perfection of God, the cleanliness of God, the holiness of God. 
But there's another purpose that the law and the Old Testament priesthood had, and it was this. It was a way of showing people what sin is, right? It's a way of not only showing the perfection of God, but revealing our own imperfection. It was a way of showing the people that they could never live up to God's holy, perfect standards. This is what Paul says, the Apostle Paul um, in the New Testament, and he writes in Romans 7 about the law, this very thing. Now, Paul was very versed in the law. He was actually well taught in the law. He actually persecuted Christians because uh, they didn't obey the law. And then he gets saved, and later on he writes this. He says, what, shall the, what then shall we say? Is the law, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had said, you shall not covet. That's what he says. So the law shows him what sin is, shows him that, that he is in need of something or someone who can deal with sin permanently. The Old Testament priesthood couldn't meet the need of sinners, and that was never its purpose. The problem of the law was not that the law of God itself, because the law is perfect, God gave it to us, gave it to the people. The problem was sinful human beings. Sin had made God's holiness unattainable for us. But in the new priesthood of Jesus, and the new law, or the new covenant as it's called, he meets our need and gives us his perfect righteousness. Now, maybe you're thinking, that's all well and good, but what's that got to do with me? Oh, I think I'm, I think I'm safe in assuming that none of us or none of you are trying to, you know, keep the, the Old Testament law in order to try and become perfect, in order to try to get close to God, right? I don't think any of you are reading the, you know, the, the, the Old Testament and going, right, well, uh, I better not touch a, the skin of a dead pig because then I'll be impure. You probably don't do that. Well, you do because you might eat bacon and that's delicious, but um, none of you are, you know, trying to find a bull that you can somehow like slit its throat and drain its blood and sp- sprinkle on the altar and then burn its flesh. You're not, you're not doing that stuff to try and get close to God. I assume that most of you even right now are wearing fa- clothing made of more than one kind of fabric, things that were forbidden by the law. But here's the thing. Just like the Hebrews were clinging onto this old system to bring them close to God, we have our own ways that we hold onto in the hope that somehow we can get close to God. So let me ask you again, think about this again. What do you put your hope in? What do you try to use to get close to God? You see, we've no problem believing that the Old Testament law is fulfilled and done away with. Jesus has fulfilled it. And we almost read Hebrews and we feel sorry for these guys, these poor Hebrews. Can you imagine being so primitive and and believing this law to try and get close to God? But here's the truth, we do exactly the same. We've no problem believing that we are free from the Old Testament law, but yet what do we do? We invent our own laws, our own ways that we think will bring us close to God. One of the great things about my job is that I get to talk to a lot of people in our church, and one of the most common problems I come up against with people, not one of the things that people think is a problem, they just say, I want to be a better Christian. How can I be better? We think that somehow if, if we can be a better Christian, whatever that even means, that somehow we'll be more saved or, or uh, more in God's favor or, or in better standing with Him. 
and we invent our own law, and then we beat ourselves up when we realize that we can't even keep the law that we've invented for ourselves. Our sin means that we can't even be priests of our own law. I think in, in our church, and I was speaking to some people this week about this, I think in our, our church, one of the laws that we invent for ourselves is, is that we need to, to, to know more stuff about God in order to be close to Him. Now, we value intellectual knowledge. If only I knew more things about the Bible, if only I knew more dates of history in the Bible or knew more of the right theological answers, then somehow that will make me closer to God. Now, I'm not saying for a second that we shouldn't want to know as much about God as we can. We absolutely should, right? It'd be, it'd be very, very weird if I said, I love my wife, but not want to know about her and not want to keep getting to know her. That would be odd, wouldn't it? But here's the thing. Knowing more about God doesn't necessarily mean that you are knowing Him more. Head knowledge isn't always a sign of, of spiritual maturity or, or intimacy with the Lord. Learning more and more about God can't do anything to bring you close to God unless you have real heart change, unless you have a paradigm shift. Say I'm hungry, and, uh, and what you guys don't know is that I just ate a sausage roll off camera before I came up here because I was hungry. Um, so there you go. But say I'm hungry and I go to the Chinese to get food, which I have to be honest is not completely outside the realms of possibility. Um, it has been known to happen. Um, I can go to the Chinese, and I can read the menu, right? I can memorize the menu. I can, uh, you know, know all the spices. I mean, I say spices, probably more like all the MSG they put in. But I can know it inside out. I can know all the options, the sides, blah, blah, blah. I can even know the chefs and blah, blah, blah. But listen, unless I actually order food and eat it, I'm going to be hungry. The head knowledge of that menu isn't going to do one thing to solve my hunger unless I eat it. And if you're putting stock in theological knowledge to bring you closer to God, you might as well just be living under the Old Testament law. Or maybe you're like me, and you invent a law that says, unless I'm doing a lot of stuff for God, I can't be close to Him. For example, well, uh, I, I, serve on a, I serve on a Sunday morning serving team. You know, I welcome people to church and give them the coffee. Remember when we could do that? That was fun. Um, well, I'm doing something, I'm doing this thing for God. I'm giving something back to Him. And maybe it's not just serving in church, but, but what about serving your neighbors or even sharing the gospel? Well, I mean, today I cooked a meal for uh, that person in church who's, who's going through a hard time, and then I got home and I helped the old lady across the street bring her bins in, and, and then I, shared, I even shared the gospel with my postman. That's a pretty good day. God must be really pleased with me today. I must be really close to Him today. But the truth is that doing godly things in order to get close to God isn't the same as doing godly things to serve Him because we are close to Him. And just like the Old Testament law illuminates sin, the laws that we invent for ourselves just show us how far off the mark we really are. Because you're never going to meet the targets you set for yourself. You can try and try and try and try to be a good Christian, but without abiding with Jesus, you're not going to be a Christian. 
You're never going to fulfill the law that you invent for yourself. Sure, some days you're going to have a good day. Some days you will have days like the one I just described. But most days, if you're anything like me, you're not going to be anything close to that. Most days you're going to feel like a terrible Christian because you haven't met your targets. Now listen, I want to just detour for one second here. I want to be very, very clear. I'm not saying that we shouldn't read our Bibles and pray and serve our neighbors and share the gospel and and, and seek to live holy lives because we absolutely should. But here's the thing. Even the Old Testament people, they obeyed the law and and made the sacrifices and, and all those kinds of things, not to become God's people, but because they were God's people. They were God's people because God had rescued them out of Egypt, and therefore they obeyed His laws. And similarly, for us, we, we read our Bibles, we pray, we serve our neighbors, we, 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 we share the gospel, and we pursue holiness, not in order to become close to God, but because we have been made close to God. And if we just do those things as ways of drawing near to God, then we're severely missing the point. And here's the truth. Please hear this. There is nothing, and we always talk about this, there is nothing you can do to make God love you any less. But, just as importantly, there is nothing you can do to make God love you any more than He already does. We need a paradigm shift. We need a new way of thinking. We need a, we need a, a new and better law. We need a better priest. We need a better hope. So, out with the old. Let's say, out with the old and in with the new. Verses 13 to 17. Let me read it again. Let's pick up my Bible here. Um, For the one of whom these things are spoken, that's Jesus, belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So we know that, that we as believers in Jesus, we're free from the law. We're not free to sin, uh, but we're free from condemnation of sin. So the former, the Old Testament law and the priesthood system, that was temporary, but Christ is, 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 permanent, is perfect and permanent. In other words, Jesus is the new way. Jesus is the, the, the paradigm shift. Out with the old, the Old Testament law, the laws that we invent for ourselves, and in with the new, Jesus, our only way to draw near to God. And I love that, that, that the, this, this author, this pastor, doesn't, he, he proves this. He gives us proofs. How do we know that Jesus is our only way to God? Well, firstly, we know it because God has said it, and God can't lie, right? God has said it. God has promised it. A thousand years before Jesus was even born, there was going to be a priest that would come, just like Melchizedek was a priest, not in the Jewish system, who could be a priest for everyone. And he quotes here Psalm 110 again. Talk at this Psalm written a thousand years before Jesus, pointing, talking about Jesus. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. You see, the pastor of Hebrews refers to this Old Testament passage to prove that it's God's will that that Jesus would replace all the other priests. God has promised it and he will not change his mind. 
Jesus is our forever priest. And I'd love to go into that, but, but I've covered that in other sermons and, and we don't have time. But there's another proof here. In fact, it's, it's kind of the crescendo of all the proofs. Verse 16. What's the proof that Jesus is our new way? Jesus is our only way to God. Jesus is our better priest. What is it? Verse 16. Jesus has become a priest, not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. The Old Testament priests, they had loads of qualifications uh, that they had to have uh, that allowed them to become priests, right? You had to have the the right father and the right mother. You had to be from the tribe of Levi. They had to have no physical defects. Obviously, I'd be a perfect candidate. They'd have to uh, be the right age and so on and so on. But here's the thing. All those priests died. There's not one Old Testament priest who is still alive. But Jesus, on the other hand, Jesus has one qualification to be our priest, our perfect priest. And it's not that he was from the right tribe, because he wasn't. It's his indestructible life. Doesn't mean that he never died, because he did. But the power of, of, of an indestructible life means that death could not hold him. The proof that Jesus is our forever priest, is our better hope, is the fact that he rose from the dead. And therefore... He's the only one qualified to be our priest forever. Jesus is alive. I wish we had a room full of people because at least, you know, like Big Andy would be saying amen at that point. Jesus is alive. He's the only one qualified to be our better hope forever. And, and, And our hope depends on this one thing, that Jesus is alive. If Jesus isn't alive, then we might as well just pack up and go home now, right? You might as well turn your laptop off and put on Netflix or go out for a walk. But listen, if Jesus is alive, and he is, it changes everything. He's the only thing that can bring us close to God. His resurrection proves his worthiness to be our priest because, listen, if he was dead, what good would he be as our priest, right? How can, a, how can a dead man intercede for anybody? How can a dead man be a priest? How could a dead Jesus bring us close to God? This is the paradigm shift that we need. We need to stop trusting in all the things that we try to find hope in. The financial security, the relationships, the family. All those things are fine and good and, and those are fine, but, but none of those things can give you the sure and eternal hope that we need. None of those things can bring you close to God. Only Jesus can. And we need to stop trusting in the laws that we invent for ourselves. We, you know what? You know what? Uh, m- most of us in our church are, are kind of under 40, right? Uh, and even if you're not, but, but one of the things that we've inherited in Northern Ireland is, is, the, is the paradigm of being good living. And it's a cancer to the church. Because the Bible doesn't tell us, be good living and be close to God. The, 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 Bible tells us, the Bible tells us, you are brought near to God by a great high priest who has the power of an indestructible life. And being good living may be a result of that. Of course we'll pursue holiness in our lives because our high priest is holy. 
Nothing you can muster up in your own strength can bring you one centimeter closer to God. Only the risen and alive Jesus can do that. And the fact that Jesus is alive is the only reason that he can be my savior, that he can be my king, that he can be my priest. And if he's not alive, then he's just a memory. And most of the time, I say this, honestly, most of the time, and I suspect I'm not alone, I walk around as if Jesus has never risen from the dead. And we do this, don't we? We look at his ministry. We look at Jesus' time on earth, and we think, oh, well, if Jesus were in this situation that I'm in right now, how would he handle that? Well, I know that Jesus did this, so maybe I should try and do that. And we should look to Jesus as our example. We, we definitely should try to live in the way that he has shown us. But Jesus is far more than our example. He is our Redeemer who is alive and will be alive forever. That, you know what that means? That means that you can ask him for help. You don't just have to look to the history books and go, well, Jesus did this. You can actually ask him for help right now because he's alive and he will help you. He has far more power than just being a good example from the pages of history. Apart from his death and resurrection, right, Jesus has done far more to help his people since he left earth than he did during his entire ministry on earth. Like that, you, you might think that sounds like heresy, but that's true. Since Jesus left earth, he has been helping his people for 2,000 years, every single minute of every single day. He's present. He's our ongoing, never-ending, ever-present help right now. Listen, uh, Jesus, our perfect priest, is alive. And so whatever it is that you're facing, whatever it is you've done, no matter how hopeless, no matter how helpless, no matter how desperate, no matter how joyful, we know that, that Jesus, the one who died for us, is alive and he is on our side and he lives to help us. Is he still my priest? Yes, because he's alive. Does he pray for me? Yes, he's alive. Can he help me when I feel weak? Yes, he's alive. Can I talk to him when I feel alone? Yes, he's alive and awake. <laughs> Can he forgive me when I mess up and sin against him? Yes, he's alive. Can, can, can he pick me up when I fall down? Yes, he's alive. Does he hold me in his hand? Yes, he's alive. Does he love me even now? Yes, he's alive. Will he ever leave me? No, because he's alive and he will forever be alive. This is, do you see why this is the better hope? Do you see why uh, this is better than trusting in our own efforts? A wee while ago, I came downstairs one morning, and our kids at that, that, that age were, you know, uh, I mean, we're not perfect parents, so sometimes they'll just get up and go downstairs on their own, even though they're quite young. And I came down one morning, and Abigail, who's just turned three, she's standing there with a box of cereal, cornflakes, I think it was, or Rice Krispies, probably Rice Krispies, ripped open, and she's just in like a kind of puddle of dry Rice Krispies mushed into the carpet. And I said, oh, what are you doing there, Abby? And she said, I clean up, I clean up. Do you know how absurd that seems to me? I'm like, you're not cleaning up, you're making a mess. This is like us when we try to clean ourselves up before God. Whenever Jesus is alive in heaven right now to help us, and we're trying to clean up, all we're doing is smushing the Rice Krispies into the carpet. Do you know what I mean? 
We try and try and try to make ourselves better, to live good Christian lives, to get close to God. And we fail to see that Jesus is standing there with open arms saying, I am the door and anyone who enters through me will be saved. That's the paradigm shift we need. This is the new way of thinking that we need. Out with the old, the law and our efforts and in with the new, the priesthood of the resurrected and still very much alive Jesus. Finally then, how does the, the, the new make us perfect? How does the new bring perfection? Let me read verses 18 and 19 to, to finish this little section off. For on the one hand, a former commandment, that's the, the law, the Old Testament law and the priesthood, is set, a, set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Now, there's a word that's repeated in this passage a couple of times, um, and I haven't yet explained what it means. Um, it's, it's, here in, it's in verse 11 back at the start, and it's here again in verse 19. And it's this word, perfection. Now, what do, we, uh, what do we normally think of when we think of perfect, right? We think of something that's complete, something that can't be improved on. Uh, before, uh, when I arrived here this morning, Thomas asked me if I was excited about the United-Liverpool game this afternoon, and I said I can't stop thinking about it, and I very much am. In a pre-match interview, Ollie Gunnar Solskjaer, uh, United legend and doing pretty well manager said that United would have to play a perfect game to beat Liverpool at home. Now, I think that's true, and I hope they can play a perfect game. But that's kind of what we think of when we think of perfection. We think of something that can't be made better. And then that's true. But, but here, the pastor of Hebrews has a very specific meaning of this word perfection. And what he means is to, be in the, to put somebody in the position to make someone so they can stand before God. In other words, the perfection that Hebrews is talking about here is access to God. Something that the law could never do. Unfettered, unimpeded, permanent access, full access to God. That's what's on offer here. That's what we, if we believe in Jesus, have. And this can only happen because our high priest is sinless and has given his sinless perfection to us. He takes our sin, our unworthiness, our failure on himself. And in exchange, he gives us his total perfection. His worthiness. His victory. When Jesus died on the cross, the wrath of God that we deserve because of our unworthiness, because of our sin, because of our failure, was poured out on him instead. And because of this... We can draw near to God. That's what it says. That's what it says right here. This is God speaking to us, saying that a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Because of His perfection. Not on the basis of anything that we do or have done ourselves, but completely on the basis of what He has done and His perfection. Listen, if you're a Christian this morning, the perfection that you now possess is the perfection of Jesus. Let me put it the other way, another way. The better hope that we have, better than, than trusting in our own efforts or the Old Testament law, is that we now possess the perfection of Jesus and therefore have full access to God. 
Isn't that much better than trying to do it yourself? Isn't that much better than trying to just clean up your act to get close to God? I'm going to serve as many charities as possible. I'm going to be involved in so many social action initiatives as possible. I'm going to share the gospel as much as possible because that way I can somehow be a little bit better and hopefully God accepts me. Our better hope is that Jesus has given us His perfection so that we can draw near to God. Let me say that again. Our better hope is that Jesus has given us His perfection so we can draw near to God. Now, let me ask you, and I'm, re- I'm nearly done. Last week, I had a bit of a scare when halfway through, I looked at my clock, and I was three-quarters away through the time, but only halfway through my notes. I'm not there this morning. But let me ask you, genuinely, how many of you feel unworthy? Or, or let me put it another way. And this movie rings, rings home a wee bit more, I think. For me, anyway, it does. How many of you feel like you're not good enough? I do. Every single day. Especially when someone says, hey, you, you, you know, you, you have to teach a bunch of people. Then I'm like, I, I can't do that. But here's the thing. As long as you continue to measure yourself against the law, you will never be good enough. Whether it's the law of the Old Testament or the law of the standards that you set for yourself, you will never be worthy. You will never be accepted. You will never be good enough. I'm not good enough because I, I, I don't pray enough. I'm not good enough because I don't read my Bible enough. I'm not good enough because I swear too much. I'm not good enough because I get angry with my kids too easily. Whatever it may be, All these laws that you set for yourself, they just keep us entrapped in our sin. Now listen to the truth that sets us free this morning. Listen to this truth. I am not good enough, but Jesus is. It's that simple. You are not good enough, but Jesus is. And all we do is believe it. This is our our better hope through which we draw near to God. Not our own efforts to be perfect, but the perfection of Jesus. All we have to do is rest. Rest on that. Listen, if you constantly find yourself trying and striving to be better, to be accepted, to be more worthy, to work your way into God's affection, my invitation to you this morning, actually, God's invitation to you this morning is just, child of mine, stop and rest. Rest on the finished work of Jesus. Rest in the fact that He is alive and that He's got you. Just simply abide with Him. And listen, when you do mess up, which you will, (laughs) just talk to Him. He's alive. He can hear you. Just say, Lord, I'm sorry, but I trust your forgiveness. And I thank God that it's not on my perfection, but your perfection that I'm allowed to draw near to God. And if you're not a Christian this morning, so glad that you're here and and that you're checking this out. If you've never trusted Jesus in this way, chances are you're trying uh, in your own ways to be good enough, trying to live a good life, trying to be a good person. Well, my invitation to you is the same. Just stop. Rest in the finished work of Jesus. Just say, sorry, 
I'm sorry, Lord, I'm trying to do this on my own. I just trust in your perfection. And here's the thing, I guarantee you when you do that, Jesus is is standing with open arms waiting for you, our eternal high priest uh, waiting to give you his perfection. So in summary, out with the old. Uh, My efforts can't bring me close to God. In with the new, Jesus is alive and he lives to help me. And the new brings perfection. Because of Jesus, I have access to God. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, uh, I'm so excited that you are perfect and that I am not. (laughs) I'm so thankful that I don't have to try because every time I try, I just feel. Lord, thank you that you only tried once and you didn't fail. That your once and for all sacrifice was enough. Uh, Lord, I pray that, that we as a church family can just learn to stop striving to stop writing our own laws, to stop trying to be the priests of our own covenant, that we would just rest on the finished work of Jesus. Rest and trust that you are enough, that your grace is enough. Lord, I pray that you would help us have this change in the way, in the way we think, that we would just take it into our hearts, that, that I am not good enough, but Jesus is. Help us to live day by day in that. Help us to live... Uh, not just looking at the Jesus of history, but living in relationship and abiding with the Jesus who, who rose from the dead, who is very much still alive. We love you, Lord, and Holy Spirit, we need your help. We need your help for this to become a reality in our lives because we just forget. We just forget to trust you. We just forget to rest in you. We're somehow more comfortable striving in our own efforts. Help us, Lord. We need your help to even need you. Um, but Lord, we do trust that you're alive. We do believe that, that, that death could not hold you. And we do believe that you live to help us. Father, visit our church. Be with us. Help us just to turn to you and say, help me, Lord. We love you, Lord, and we just pray that, that somehow that you would turn all of this, this sermon and us listening into worship of you and, and that you would be glorified through it all. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.